Hey there, just a quick announcement before we begin. If you didn't know, I host another podcast called Let's Talk About True Crime. On that podcast, I discuss something that's new and trending in the true crime world each month. Every episode features a special guest who joins me for a fun and informative discussion about all things true crime. On my last episode, I interviewed Aaron from a little true crime podcast you may have heard of called The Generation Y. Of course you've heard of it. It's huge. Well, I've got another episode releasing in just a couple of days, and my very special guest will be Alvin Williams from Affirmative Murder, one of my very favorite true crime podcasts. Alvin and Fran discuss two true crime cases each week, giving you all the details of fascinating, shocking, and sometimes super surprising crimes. You will love their personalities and their sense of humor, too. So check out Affirmative Murder if you're looking for another great true crime podcast. Also, subscribe to Let's Taco About True Crime. Yes, that's Taco, T-A-C-O, about true crime, on your favorite podcast app. And you'll get the next episode as soon as it drops. See you there. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're beginning a brand new series for February and the first series of 2020. Welcome back to the show. The bond between parent and child is one of the strongest and most important relationships we may have in our lives. Children rely on their parents for their very survival in the first few years, as well as love, attention, and guidance. Parents, in turn, may feel the greatest sense of love and fulfillment when they add a child to their family. But sometimes, a parent-child relationship goes wrong. Perhaps the parent expects too much of their child, or maybe the child feels neglected or the parent feels taken advantage of. There are many reasons a relationship between parent and child can become rocky. But in some extreme cases, the relationship between a child and their parents can become so fractured, it turns downright deadly. In this series, I'll share stories of kids who commit parricide, murdering one or both parents. What caused these kids to become murderous? Was it abuse? Did they snap from too much pressure? Or were they simply bad seeds? Problem children that just took it too far. I'll give you all the details so you can decide. First up, a baby girl is adopted to fulfill the hopes and dreams of one couple who are desperate to have a child. But an unstable home life early on leads her to rebel in her teen years and then commit the ultimate rejection of her parents' love when she enlists another teen to eliminate them. This is the story of Marlene Olive. Marlene Louise Olive was born in Norfolk, Virginia, on January 15, 1959. Her mother was unmarried and just 19 years old. She placed her baby up for adoption upon birth. When she was just one day old, Marlene was adopted by a couple who had been married for more than a dozen years. Marlene would be their first and their only child. James Olive met Naomi Wagner in 1944. He was an army recruit, and they wed before he was shipped off to war. When he returned, they began their life together. 
Jim was adventurous. Naomi was not, but she would take on the traditional role dictated by the times they were living in. She would support her husband in his career and financial goals, even when they took her far from home. Jim first moved his family to Panama, the transcontinental country located in Central and South America. Jim wanted to take advantage of the real estate boom happening there in the late 1950s and early 1960s. He began to invest money in the area. But before Marlene was a year old, Jim lost his savings in a bad business deal and had to relocate his family to Guayaquil, Ecuador for work. There he was employed as a marketing executive for Teneco Corporation. Two things were happening for Naomi during this time. First, she hated her new city and was very unhappy with the move. She became reclusive and over time would begin drinking more and more as an escape from her unhappiness. Jim was away from home quite a bit for his job and Naomi began to accuse him of having affairs, although there are no confirmed reports that this was ever the case. Secondly, as much as she had longed for a child over the years, and even though thrilled when they adopted Marlene, it soon became apparent that being a mother was overwhelming to Naomi. She was overprotective of the baby to the extreme. The first six months of Marlene's life, Naomi wore a mask whenever she was with her and also required everyone else to do the same. She was afraid that the child would become ill and kept her away from any and all suspected germs. She sterilized everything that the baby may come into contact with as well. Now, anyone who has even basic knowledge of child development knows that the first year of a baby's life is the most important time for a child to bond with its parents. And it's a bit difficult for an infant to do so when the parent's face is covered by a mask. A baby bonds with its caretaker through nonverbal cues, like a smile or a frown or other facial expressions. Marlene was not provided this experience. We could speculate that this was the reason she and her mother had such a rocky relationship later on, but there were other factors at play as well. Perhaps Naomi's obsession with germs was an early sign of mental illness, because by the time Marlene was in grade school, her mother's mental health would deteriorate. She heard voices, became enraged at the slightest provocation, and her drinking descended into alcoholism. By the time Marlene was a preteen, Naomi was barely able to care for herself, much less her child. Marlene received another upheaval in her life at the age of 10. A curious child, she would sometimes play in her father's home office, and while doing so, would look through his files and documents. One day, she discovered her adoption papers in a file. She questioned her father, asking what adoption meant. He told her that sometimes people really want to have children, but are unable to have a baby of their own, so they take in children whose parents are unable to care for them. Once Marlene understood that her father was telling her she was not their biological child, she was devastated. Marlene spent a lot of time alone as a child. Her mother was unavailable. She slept a lot during the day due to her drinking. Even when her mother was awake, Marlene tried not to disturb her, as she didn't know what kind of mood she'd be in on any given day. Her father worked long hours, and when he was home, had his hands full taking care of his wife, preparing meals, and seeing that Marlene was looked after. He and Marlene didn't have a lot of time together, just having fun or interacting in the normal ways as a parent and child. However, 
Marlene loved her father and depended on him for what little stability she did have. Marlene also didn't have a lot of friends. Schoolmates would later describe her as quiet and one who didn't socialize much with others. She would later report that she was afraid to bring friends home as her mother was often unkempt and drunk when she returned home from school. So Marlene grew up lonely and isolated. She began creating a private fantasy world to keep herself entertained. She conjured up make-believe friends and pretended to be different people and characters in her play acting. In 1965, when Marlene was eight years old, the family was uprooted again due to Jim Olive's job. This time, they moved to the U.S., living in Colorado and then New Mexico, each for just a short period of time. Then, a couple of years later, Jim was laid off from Teneco and began a new job with Gulf Oil. He was now transferred back to Ecuador. Naomi continued to decline, mentally and emotionally. She became obsessed with one thing and then another. One time, after Marlene brought home a goldfish she won at a fair, Naomi became obsessed with collecting fish. She placed several fish tanks around her home and would spend hours just staring into the water, watching her fish swim around. Marlene began to express her anger towards her mother more frequently now. In the sixth grade, during a discussion in class about families, Marlene shared that she hated her mother. She went on to say that Naomi was not her, quote, real mother anyway, unquote. It seems Marlene now began longing for a different mother altogether. She asked her father to help her locate her biological mother. Jim tried to appease his daughter by telling her that he would share what information he had, but only when Marlene reached the age of 21. All of the moving around from place to place took a toll on both Naomi and Marlene. In 1973, Jim's job ended with Gulf Oil, and the family returned to the U.S. This time, Jim started his own business as a small business consultant. They purchased a home in San Rafael, California, located in Marin County, north of San Francisco. The move to California occurred just at the time Marlene was reaching her teen years. She began eighth grade in her new city, and the transition was difficult for her. Dealing with a mentally ill mother, a father who worked long hours, and having no friends, Marlene became anxious and her health suffered. She was diagnosed with a stomach ulcer and was prescribed pain pills for this condition. Now, introduced to drugs, which helped her be more at ease and brought her out of her shell, Marlene became dependent on them. She began self-medicating for her emotional issues and before long was deep into the high school drug scene. In Ecuador, Marlene had lived in a more sheltered and conservative environment. Now living in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1970s, she was exposed to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and she embraced all of it. She started out abusing all types of prescription pills and moved on to substances like cocaine and LSD. She made a few friends who liked to hang out on the front lawn of the school, listen to music, get high, and try to impress one another with a talk of their various exploits, some real, some imagined. Marlene took on a more dramatic persona when she began immersing herself in glam rock music, following musicians and bands like the New York Dolls and David Bowie. She copied their style of wearing over-the-top makeup, clothes, and outrageous hairstyles. She also began talking about her interest in witchcraft, 
and told friends she had joined Anton LaVey's Church of Satan in San Francisco. Part of her new persona involved sexual acting out, and she got a reputation at her high school as being promiscuous. Whether she was actually engaging in sex with multiple partners is unclear, but she took her new rep even further by bragging to friends that she had taken part in a pornographic movie. While some of these brags may have been exaggerated or fabricated completely, there was one thing Marlene had immersed herself in, and that was theft. Besides shoplifting from the nearby Northridge Mall, she was also stealing cash and credit cards from her parents. Her chronic shoplifting led to her first arrest when she was in the ninth grade. By now, she and her mother Naomi were engaging in heated screaming matches with each other. Naomi, unable to handle parenting even under normal circumstances, found herself at her wit's end with an angry, rebellious teenage daughter. Marlene bucked all of the rules her parents set for her, coming and going when she pleased, neglecting her studies, and shirking her responsibilities at home. Some of her behaviors seemed designed to specifically antagonize her mother, such as dressing provocatively and sneaking out to meet boys. When Marlene laughed in her mother's prudish ways, Naomi angrily called her a whore and said that she had probably taken after her birth mother, who she called a prostitute. Then Naomi did something shocking. In front of her daughter, she stripped off all of her clothes, gyrated her hips, grabbed her crotch, and told Marlene that she was showing her what her birth mother was like. Marlene, of course, hated Naomi even more for ridiculing her bio mom. Naomi's attempts to scare her daughter straight backfired big time, and Marlene began to act out even more than before. While she still cared for her dad, Marlene didn't care for his rules or the fact that he wasn't around to pay attention to her. She was also resentful that he always seemed to take her mother's side. Even worse, she suspected Jim of reporting some of her friend's drug activities to the authorities. The relationship between Marlene Olive and her parents had already been greatly fractured. It would shatter altogether soon after Marlene met Charles Riley. Marlene Olive was 15 years old when she met 19-year-old Charles David Riley in 1974. Chuck, as he was called by some, had dropped out of high school a couple of years earlier. Most who knew him thought of him as a good kid. After dropping out, he worked a series of entry-level jobs, including delivering pizzas and working in a factory. His parents, Joanne and Oscar, were hardworking and respectable people. Joanne worked as a nurse's aide, and Oscar managed a grocery store bakery. Chuck was the oldest of their three children. His younger siblings were Carrie and Michelle. Those who knew Chuck described him as gentle, polite, and somewhat shy. He was not popular, but did have friends, although some kids bullied him for his weight. He had always been a chubby kid, and by the time he reached the age of 15, he weighed close to 300 pounds. Some of the crueler kids called him Fat Man or Boulder, while his friends gave him the more friendly nickname of Rocco. While now already over the age of 18 and a dropout, Chuck still hung out around Terra Linda High School. He was known as a guy who you could buy weed from and maybe a couple of pills. His drug dealing was pretty low-level stuff. Chuck had never even been arrested for anything and didn't have any kind of criminal record. At least, not yet. But then he met Marlene. At first glance, 
he would seem an unlikely romantic interest for fast-living, tough-talking Marlene. But their meeting was a strange kind of kismet. Chuck was hanging out in front of the high school, most likely selling some weed, on the same day that Marlene first dropped acid. She was tripping out on the front lawn of the school, and some of the other kids thought it was hilarious when she started to have a bad trip. Chuck saw the slender, dark-haired girl and thought he recognized a kindred spirit under all that black clothing. He came to her rescue, sitting with her and talking gently, until she came down from the drugs. Marlene was grateful to him, and they began to hang out together. Besides the fact that he was kind to her, Marlene saw other positives in hanging out with Chuck. First of all, he always had drugs and shared them with her for free. Secondly, Chuck was gaga over her, and she knew it. This was something she had not experienced before, and it felt good to get showered with so much attention. He also had his own car and could drive her around to help her escape her problematic home life. Chuck never had a girlfriend before, and he fell head over heels for Marlene. The relationship soon became sexual, and that totally sealed the deal for Chuck, who himself was sexually innocent before meeting Marlene. He now fell desperately in love. But the relationship was volatile, mostly because Marlene was constantly demanding more from her boyfriend. Having formerly perceived herself as unloved, Marlene now put Chuck to the test to prove his love. She expected him to be around at a moment's notice to rescue her from what she described as her horrible parents. She demanded favors and gifts from him, and when he told her he was unable to give her something she wanted, she set out to make him jealous by coming on to other guys or talking about past boyfriends and sexual encounters. Chuck tried to become whatever Marlene wanted. He lost weight and gave in to all her demands. His friends began to notice a change in him. He became withdrawn, and they rarely saw him. His whole world became Marlene. Marlene told him that she was educated in the dark arts and could put him under a, quote, witch's spell, unquote. She said she could hypnotize him and make him do whatever she asked. Chuck believed her. He was under her power almost all the time, mostly because he wanted to keep their relationship going. Marlene liked to role-play with her boyfriend. Like she'd done as a little girl, she began acting out her internal fantasy world. But now, her fantasies included sex, violence, and criminal activity. She brought Chuck along into the highly sexualized, dark fantasy world she created. Some of their sexual role-play included Marlene humiliating Chuck. She knew she had a powerful hold over him as long as she continued to have sex with him. She began to feel more powerful in the relationship, and the sex became more bizarre. In one instance, Marlene even urinated on Chuck in front of her friends in a display of dominance. She and Chuck also became criminal accomplices. Chuck now joined Marlene on her shoplifting expeditions. In early 1975, Chuck and Marlene were caught with over $6,000 in merchandise stolen from the Northridge Mall, mostly women's clothing and accessories. They were arrested and charged with grand larceny. Both were bailed out by their parents. In May of the same year, Chuck was arrested for possession of marijuana and for being in possession of a sawed-off shotgun. He was a gun enthusiast and owned several weapons. While at first, Marlene's parents had taken a liking to her new boyfriend, pegging him as a polite and responsible young man, they now decided that he was the bad influence on Marlene. 
they forbade her to continue seeing him, a restriction that she refused to honor. She and her mother began arguing even more frequently, and the tension in the home escalated. Naomi threatened to have Marlene locked up in juvenile hall or sent away to boarding school if she did not adhere to their rules. Chuck, forbidden from seeing Marlene, was miserable. When Marlene had simply threatened to break up with him in the past, he had become so depressed he attempted suicide. Desperate to be with Marlene, he ignored her parents' admonitions and he went to her home attempting to see her. Jim Olive met him at the door and threatened to kill him if he ever tried to see his daughter again. Marlene Olive and Chuck Riley had been forbidden from seeing each other, and Marlene decided something had to be done. She told friends she wanted her mother dead. In the past, she had asked other friends for advice on how to kill her mother. She had even approached some of them, saying she'd pay them to kill Naomi. They either thought Marlene was all talk, and this was just another ploy for attention, or they thought she might be serious, but didn't want to get involved. Marlene, unable to persuade anyone to help her, took matters into her own hands. She tried poisoning her mother by mixing crushed-up pills into her food. Naomi, noticing the bitter taste, didn't eat the food. Foiled again. Marlene began pressuring Chuck to help her in her murderous plot. She said he needed to kill Naomi or find someone to do it. When he hesitated to help, she threatened to break up with him. On Saturday, June 21, 1975, Marlene and her mother got into another vicious argument. She called Chuck that morning and told him, Get your gun. We've got to kill the bitch today. Having a long-standing hatred for her mother, but still some positive feelings for her dad, Marlene told Chuck that she didn't want her father hurt. She asked her father to take her shopping, and he agreed. She then left the door unlocked for Chuck to slip in once they had gone. Chuck entered the home on Hibiscus Way and found it silent. Naomi, as was her normal routine, was sleeping the afternoon away in the master bedroom. Chuck entered quietly, carrying a twenty-two caliber pistol and a hammer. While his story would change over time, Chuck Riley would say that, not wanting to alert neighbors with the sound of a gunshot, he'd instead struck Marlene in the head with a claw hammer. He hit her several times, but she continued to move. Finally, and this is pretty gruesome, the hammer got lodged in Naomi Olive's skull, and he could not remove it. She was still alive, so Chuck said he went to the kitchen, grabbed a large knife, and returned, plunging it into Naomi's chest several times. She was still breathing, so he then grabbed a pillow and smothered the woman until she was dead. Now, this next part seems like a horrifying, yet cliched turn of events you'd see in a movie, but both Marlene and Chuck would swear it happened. While he was still in the act of snuffing the life out of Mrs. Olive, Jim and Marlene returned home. Mr. Olive, seeing Chuck leaning over his battered and bloody wife, picked up the kitchen knife her attacker had dropped and rushed towards him. Chuck turned and fired. Four bullets struck Jim Olive in the chest, killing him. Now Chuck and Marlene set about cleaning up the crime scene. First, they had to get rid of the bodies. Wrapping Marlene's parents in rugs, they placed the bodies in Chuck's car. They then drove about 20 minutes away to China Camp State Park, located on the edge of the San Francisco Bay. 
They placed the bodies in an open fire pit, soaked them with gasoline, covered them with logs, and lit them on fire. The fire became hot very quickly, and the teens left while the bodies were still burning, sure the evidence of their gruesome crime would turn into ash. Then they returned to Marlene's house. Meanwhile, a park ranger had noticed a large amount of smoke indicating a fire and drove to the area. He noticed that something in a fire pit had been burned beyond recognition. Assuming it was a deer carcass that some idiot had set on fire, he doused the still-hot embers with water and left the area. Back at the house, Marlene and Chuck set about cleaning up the rest of the evidence. They started to mop up all the blood, and realizing it was a bigger job than they thought, called a friend to help them clean the crime scene. They told him that Marlene's parents were dead and that Chuck had killed them. Together, they gathered all the bloody bedding, rugs, and anything used to clean up the blood and dropped them into a large garbage bag. Chuck and Marlene then returned to the fire pit to make sure the bodies had completely burned and to dispose of the rest of the evidence. Over the next few days, Marlene and Chuck lived in the Olives' home together, using cash, checks, and credit cards belonging to her parents to buy food, go out to dinner, and even to purchase tickets and attend a rock concert. They also told several other friends that Chuck had killed Marlene's parents. Chuck told them, quote, We had to do it. They wouldn't let me see her, unquote. No one reported this news to the police. Chuck and Marlene talked about their plans for the future. They decided that at some point, Marlene would report her parents missing. The plan was to wait until the Olives were declared dead, after which Marlene would collect their life insurance. The couple would then move to Ecuador and live a life of ease. But while Marlene and her parents' murderer were still playing house, Jim Olive's co-workers were growing concerned when he didn't show up for work or call in to let anyone know why he was absent. About a week after the murders, one of his colleagues traveled to his home and when no one answered his knocks, looked inside the window. The house was in disarray, and thinking the Olives might have been robbed, the co-worker called the police. When the police arrived, they also tried making contact with the occupants. Still not receiving any answer, the officers entered the home to conduct a welfare check. It was a mess, with clothing, dirty dishes, and other items strewn throughout but not finding anyone hurt or in distress, and with no evidence that a crime had occurred, they simply left a note for the homeowners to call once they returned. Marlene and Chuck had been out for the day, and upon returning, found the note the police had left on the door. Marlene traveled to the police station in order to tell them that all was well, and hopefully discourage the cops from returning to investigate further. But once at the station, her story quickly began to unravel. The cops were immediately suspicious when the 15-year-old told them that her parents had gone on an extended vacation to Lake Tahoe and left her home alone. Returning to the house to investigate more thoroughly, detectives noted that every room of the house was a mess, except the master bedroom. While officers kept Marlene at the police department to question her further, investigators began to seek out and then question her friends and acquaintances. Before long, they heard rumors that Marlene and her boyfriend had killed her parents. Officers were also given the name of the boy who'd helped clean up the house. Upon being interviewed, he told investigators that he'd seen bloody clothes and bedding, but hadn't witnessed the crime. Back at the station, 
Marlene continued to give different accounts of what had happened to her parents once the police told her what they had heard and discovered. Now she abandoned the story about her parents being on vacation and said that her mother had murdered her father and then fled. She then changed that story and said that her father had murdered her mother and then he'd fled. Another version had the Hell's Angels killing both of her parents. Finally, Marlene confessed and told the police that her boyfriend Chuck Riley had killed her parents. She said he had snapped because they had forbidden him from seeing her. Her only part in the crime, she said, was helping him dispose of the bodies. She then led the police to the burn pit. Chuck Riley was picked up for suspicion of murder. Upon being questioned by police, he quickly confessed. He admitted that he had killed the Olives, but only at Marlene's direction. She'd been planning the murder of her mother for some time, he explained. Marlene would claim that she was afraid of Chuck Riley, and it only helped him out of fear. Asked why she had stayed living with him in the home for a week, she answered that Chuck had held her hostage, forcing her to take drugs so she could not run away. The media would get a hold of the story, and the crime would be called the barbecue murders by the press. The murder of Jim and Naomi Olive would gain worldwide attention due to the brutality of the crime and the youth of the perpetrators. On July 10, 1975, both Marlene Olive and Chuck Riley were charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Marlene was represented by a young attorney named Peter Mitchell, who had previously represented her on a shoplifting charge. His first task was to convince the court to have Marlene tried in juvenile court and not as an adult. He argued that Marlene was a heavy drug user and was known to live in a fantasy world. She talked about a lot of fantastical things, he said, including killing her parents. However, she had not been serious. It was only Chuck Riley who took it seriously and carried out the crime, her defense claimed. Marlene, Mitchell told the judge, therefore could not be held responsible for the murders. In September, the judge made his ruling. Marlene Olive would be tried in juvenile court. If convicted of the murders, she would be sent to a California Youth Authority facility and would be released no later than her 21st birthday. Charles Chuck Riley would have no such luck. Having committed a brutal double murder at the age of 20, he was tried in adult court in October of 1975. The biggest strike against him was that his confession, with all the gruesome details spelled out, had been tape-recorded and was now played for the jury. His defense told the jury that Riley had been manipulated by Marlene. They described how Marlene had literally hypnotized the gullible and love-struck teen. Attempting to show how susceptible to hypnosis Chuck Riley was, he was placed under hypnosis to testify to the true details of the murder. Riley now said that Marlene had attacked her mother before leaving the house that morning. He said when he arrived, Naomi was already dying a slow and agonizing death after being repeatedly bludgeoned with a claw hammer by her daughter. Yes, he had stabbed and suffocated Mrs. Olive, he admitted, but only to end her suffering. As for Jim Olive, Riley said shooting him had been in self-defense. Mr. Olive had threatened to kill him. The story was a tough sell for the jury, especially after the prosecution brought in an expert witness in the field of hypnosis. 
the expert testified that while Riley was sharing this alternate version of events under hypnosis, he spoke in the past tense. When a person is placed under hypnosis, they are reliving the events, he explained, so they speak in the present tense. This, in his opinion, proved that Riley had faked being under hypnosis while testifying. Chuck Riley was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. He was sent to San Quentin's death row in 1976. Marlene was tried in juvenile court, so the judge, without a jury present, would hear the case, and he alone would make the ruling. Marlene had been given a psych evaluation while awaiting trial. She was found to be troubled, but competent to stand trial. Her attorney presented her life circumstances to the judge, her troubled mother, absent father, and her loneliness and retreat into a fantasy life. The judge took this into consideration but ultimately ruled that Marlene, quote, did encourage, instigate, aid, abet, and act as an accomplice in the homicides of her parents, unquote. He said that the evidence presented proved that Chuck Riley had killed Jim Olive, but conceded that, quote, who actually killed the mother will never know, unquote. He sentenced Marlene to serve the maximum time allowed by the juvenile court. She would spend a little over three years at the California Youth Authority's Ventura School, at which time she would be 21 years old and scheduled for release. Marlene was required to attend school and complete her high school education during her time at the youth facility. She also used this time to attempt to locate her birth mother. She enlisted her attorney to help her. He was able to gain access to Marlene's adoption papers that included the name of her biological mother. Marlene learned that her mother had been 19 years old when she met a young Navy man and become pregnant. She was not and had never been a sex worker, as Naomi had claimed. However, it seems as if her birth mother did not respond to Marlene's request to connect with her. Marlene's good behavior while incarcerated earned her the right to live outside of the facility during her last year there. She would reside in the home of a former juvenile services volunteer who had befriended her. However, just weeks before Marlene was set to be released permanently, she ran away. She traveled all the way across the country, landing in New York City. There, as her adoptive mother had often warned, she abused drugs and supported herself through sex work. Marlene was found and returned to the youth facility, but was still able to earn her release at the age of 21. Marlene Olive changed her name several times over the years. She spent most of her time in Los Angeles and continued to rack up criminal offenses. She was charged with credit card fraud and cashing bad checks and spent a year in jail two separate times. In 1986, she was arrested with 14 other people and was accused of being the ringleader of a fraud and forgery ring. She taught her accomplices how to steal identities and use them to open fraudulent credit accounts by fishing through residential garbage cans. This earned her the nickname by investigators as Queen of the Trashers, and also earned her five years in prison. In the early 1990s, it appeared that Marlene was attempting to go straight. She enrolled as a student at the University of Los Angeles, but dropped out soon afterwards. By 1992, she was back to her old tricks when she was convicted of making a false financial statement. In 1995, Marlene was also convicted of possessing a forged driver's license. 
In 2003, she was arrested in Bakersfield, California, for being under the influence of drugs, in possession of stolen property, counterfeit checks, and drug paraphernalia. Investigators said that they had, quote, rarely come across a street-level forger believed to be as prolific or skilled as Olive, unquote. She was sentenced to nine years in a Kern County women's prison. Chuck Riley only sat on death row for two years. In 1978, the death penalty was ruled unconstitutional, and all California death row prisoners had their sentences commuted. Riley was resentenced, receiving two concurrent life sentences with the possibility of parole after seven years. He was then transferred to another prison in San Luis Obispo, located on the central California coast. Riley completed his high school diploma behind bars and went on to earn a college degree. He began working out and whittled his weight down to a healthy 190 pounds. He kept his nose clean in prison, and there were no negative reports in his prison record. Riley began applying for parole consideration once he was eligible, but was rejected over a dozen times. In 2011, at the age of 56, he appealed his latest parole denial. The argument his attorney presented was threefold. He said that Chuck Riley was no longer a danger to the community, that his age at the time of the crime was not considered, and that the sentence he'd received was unconstitutionally excessive. Riley won his appeal for a new parole hearing, and going before the board once again, this time was found suitable for parole. However, in 2015, California Governor Jerry Brown reversed the board's decision. Explaining his decision, Governor Brown stated that Chuck Riley, quote, continues to downplay his responsibility until he is able to come to terms with his role in this horrendous double murder, I do not believe he will be able to avoid violent behavior if released, unquote. Riley would appeal the governor's reversal of the decision, and on December 3, 2015, the court vacated the governor's reversal and reinstated Riley's grant of parole. He was released on December 8, 2015. You're probably wondering, did Chuck and Marlene ever see each other again? Well, yes, they did. In 1981, writer Richard Levine was researching his book, Bad Blood, A Family Murder in Marin County, about the Jim and Naomi Olive murders. He interviewed both Chuck Riley and Marlene Olive for the book, and in 1981, he arranged for Marlene, who had recently been released, to visit Chuck in prison. Levine transported Marlene to San Luis Obispo for the reunion and was there during their five-hour visit. The writer reported that it was an awkward meeting, with Riley doing most of the talking and Marlene remaining quiet. Marlene, Levine said, seemed ashamed. Chuck Riley sat before her, thin, healthy, and college-educated, while she continued to be in trouble with the law and was addicted to drugs. Chuck was friendly and happy to see her, but the visit was not a success. During one long, awkward pause, Chuck asked Marlene, What are you thinking? Marlene finally answered, I'm thinking about all that has gone down. I guess we just lost our marbles. After the visit ended, Chuck told Levine, I'll never see her again. As far as we know, he never has.
So was Marlene Olive born a bad seed, or was she made that way? I think her development was fundamentally flawed in her infancy when everyone was required to wear a mask to interact with her. This gave Marlene no chance to form close emotional bonds with her caregivers during those most crucial first years. Then, of course, there is her rocky relationship with her mentally ill mother and the fact that she was shuttled around to several countries and cities, making it hard for her to build stable friendships or relationships outside of her home during her childhood. Marlene hid behind a persona of being dark and dangerous. She cultivated this role even further with Chuck Riley, who seemed a bit gullible and also too dependent on his relationship with Marlene. And did she participate in her mother's murder? We'll probably never know for certain, but there are a couple of details about Naomi Olive's murder that makes me believe it's possible. First, using a hammer to bludgeon someone so viciously was, as the prosecutor would point out, overkill. Chuck and Marlene had access to a gun, but Marlene's mother was brutally beaten instead. An attack this vicious is believed to be a crime that is either personal or born out of rage. A rage killing would point more to Marlene than to Chuck. Also, not to draw out the gruesome details unnecessarily, but the fact that the claw hammer got stuck in the skull during the assault makes me wonder if someone with less upper body strength than Chuck would be more likely to encounter this problem. Finally, in his first account of the murder, Chuck said that he had not used the gun on Mrs. Olive because he didn't want the sound of a gunshot to alert the neighbors. But in his own account, Mrs. Olive had not died quickly, so wouldn't her screams while being attacked have been more likely to alert others? Doesn't make much sense. For these reasons and others, some still today believe Chuck Riley's second account of the murders, whether he was under hypnosis or not. Some believe that a more likely scenario is that Marlene got into a vicious fight with her mother that morning, bludgeoned her, and then, as her mother lay dying, Marlene called Chuck to bring the gun and finish the job. At some point, Mr. Olive returned home and met his fate as well. Community members who lived in San Rafael at the time of this brutal crime said it changed the way people thought about their neighbors and even their own role as parents for some time afterwards. Some teens said that their parents became more vigilant, but also somewhat unsure about how to place proper boundaries for them without causing their teens to rebel and perhaps wish them dead. Others dismissed these types of concerns as ridiculous. Something like this would never happen in their home, they assured themselves. And besides, Marlene was adopted. Surely that had something to do with how things turned out, they thought. But of course, we know that children can turn against biological parents as well, and can be just as deadly. I'll share one such story in the next episode of Once Upon a Crime. That'll do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I hope you'll join me next time for the next installment in the series, Bad Seeds. Don't forget to get your tickets to CrimeCon and come visit me on Podcast Row. CrimeCon is the biggest true crime conference in the world and will be held in Orlando, Florida, May 1st through 3rd, 2020. Some guests and podcasts who've already been announced include Kelly Sigler from Oxygen's Cold Justice, famed forensic psychologist Dr. Michael Bodden, the podcast Generation Y, Moms and Murder, and Invisible Choir, and of course, me. I can't wait to see you there. Use my offer code onceupon2020 for 10% off your registration. Go to crimecon.com to get your tickets. And don't forget, 
My discount code is onceupon2020. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music for the show is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.